0: Theologians have a category for challenging statements and teachings in the Bible that they call hard sayings. Often they come from Jesus. Sometimes they come from the Apostle Paul, um, and there's other places. But but the hard sayings designation can mean at least two different things. So hard sayings can be uh, hard in the sense that they're difficult to understand. So they're complex. They're unusual. Perhaps mysterious. It takes some work to get our minds around it, so it's a hard saying because it takes work to really get what is being communicated. The second sense in which which statements in the Bible could be hard sayings is that they're difficult to accept. So maybe we understand quite readily the message uh, that's being given, but it's tough to swallow, if you will. Something about it gives us pause or makes us uneasy or feel unsettled, and so we have a hard time really accepting it for what it seems to say. Our verses for today in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel uh, includes some statements like this. Uh, Jesus is going to make some statements that I think qualify as hard sayings in both of those senses. It's going to take us a little bit of work to really get what Jesus is saying, and there's, there's some mystery involved in, in, in the truths behind it. But even once we kind of understand what Jesus is saying, it kind of sits awkwardly with us sometimes. It, it feels uneasy. It makes us a little uncomfortable. And so um, we're going to find some statements of Jesus in John chapter 6 that will make us maybe feel a little uneasy. Let me just say at the beginning of this, before we even get into what he says or set up the passage at all, that as people of the book, which is what we want to be at Imprint Community Church, we value God's word and we want to base our lives and ministry around it. As people of the book, when we find a teaching in scripture that doesn't sit right with us or makes us uneasy, our energy should be applied to reorienting ourselves around the truth of God's Word rather than reinterpreting God's Word to make ourselves more comfortable. And in fact, I think a lot there's a lot of this going on in the church today around the world, especially in the United States, where we're uncomfortable with some things that the Scriptures teach pretty plainly. And so instead of reorienting ourselves around the truth of the Scripture, we kind of do uh, interpretive acrobatics to try to make the Bible say something that we like a little better, that makes us a little more comfortable. So obviously, I believe that our, in, our efforts, our work, and it does take work sometimes, should be to shape our lives around what's here in God's Word and not try to distort God's word to make ourselves feel more comfortable. Now, with that preface, I'm going to read our verses for today. But before we read them, let me give you just a little bit of a reminder of kind of where we've come. So we're in John chapter 6, in the middle of the chapter. So if you recall, at the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, Jesus miraculously fed this multitude of thousands with what amounted to a lunchable. He had some crackers and a couple of pieces of fish, and he fed thousands of people to the point that they were full. They had had all they wanted, and they were sending it back, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. So clearly a miraculous uh, provision of food for this enormous crowd. And now after that miracle, Jesus and his disciples have gone across the Sea of Galilee to a town called Capernaum, and the crowd follows him there. So in, in verses 22 through about verse 40, where Charlie visited and, and spoke to us a couple of weeks ago, um, he kind of unfolded some of that, how this crowd went to Jesus in Capernaum. They went and found him and said, basically, give us some more, right? We're ready for breakfast, all right? Uh, and so they've come to Jesus, and, and Jesus spent some time in those verses saying to them, you're missing the point you're missing the the reason that you should be following me. Yes, you're pursuing me, you're tracking me down, but the reason you're tracking me down is because you ate your fill of the loaves and you want some more. Instead, you should be pursuing me because I am the true bread of life. And so that's where we pick up today. And we're actually gonna overlap a little bit with some of the verses that Charlie uh, covered for you a few weeks ago. So we're gonna start in verse 35 and read down through verse 51. Again, not covering this entire section of text, uh, it is one unit, it's kind of one speech or or series of exchanges, if you will, Um, but there's just so much here that we've got to kind of take it a chunk at a time. So we're in the middle of this speech about Jesus declaring himself to be the bread of life. So look with me in verse 35 of John chapter 6, and I'll read down through verse 51. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's as far as we will go today. You can probably see that the issue that arises in Jesus' statements here is that of God's sovereignty in the saving of sinners. God's sovereignty in the saving of sinners. Let me, let me say very clearly what I mean. So first, to define my definition of sovereignty. This is the absolute authority and the unstoppable power of God to do whatever he pleases. This is what it means for God to be sovereign. He does whatever he wants. This is Daniel 4.35. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? God does what he wants. God is sovereign, and he can do as he pleases. I think that's what sovereignty means when we apply it to God. He has the absolute authority and unstoppable power to do as he pleases. Now, when we apply God's sovereignty to the saving of sinners, what we mean is this. God can save sinners. Whomever he chooses. God is right and just and good to save some and to leave others in their sin. Just as God told Moses in Exodus 33, and then Paul quotes in Romans 9 I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. In other words, what it means to be God is I'm free. I can do whatever I please, and it's right for me to do it. So it's not difficult to see why these verses fall into a hard sayings category and why this issue of God's sovereignty in the saving of sinners has been hard for people, and it is hard for us. So I want to walk through the progression of these verses here and see if we can't get our minds and hearts around these challenging words of Jesus. So remember that the overarching point that he is making to this crowd in Capernaum is that the only way to find true and lasting satisfaction is in himself. So they followed him, uh, they're seeking another meal, and Jesus says to him, you've kind of missed the point, right? So remember back in verse 26, he told them that, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, Remember the signs that point to the reality of who Jesus is. But because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Which he then expands to say, it's me. I am the bread of life. And in fact, I will give my flesh for the life of the world, which we'll come to at the end of this passage. So he's continuing this line of thought in verse 35. Verse 35. When he makes this declaration, I am the bread of life, which, by the way, is the first of seven I am statements that John will record for us in, in his gospel that Jesus proclaims about himself. I am the bread of life. There are going to be six more of those. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection of the life, and etc. cetera. Um, so this is the first of these seven statements. So just a way to kind of frame uh, the narrative As we're going through these next chapters, you'll see, oh, that's the second one. That's the third one. Okay, so this is statement number one. I am the bread of life. And he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So remember, again, that he's just fed this very crowd of people with more food than they needed to their fill until, until they were satisfied and wanted no more. And the crowd has actually made the connection to God feeding the people of Israel with manna in the wilderness. So there was a period of time where God gave us food from uh, from heaven and we had to depend on that each day. And Jesus is going to take that a step further and say that he is the new manna, if you will. He is the true bread that comes down from heaven. And so when he says... I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is an amazing promise. This is a precious gem in the midst of hopeless, hard times where there's little to stand on that doesn't change. Jesus says, If you come to me, you will never be hungry. If you partake of The bread that I give, you will never be hungry again. So, we do well, I think, to consider for ourselves what am I turning to for satisfaction and for fulfillment? When I feel down or lonely or depressed, what am I turning to to make myself feel better, if you will, to get myself out of that hole, to get some kind of of hope or, or joy or pleasure or whatever it is? Where am I expecting to find life and peace? And I think if the answer is anything other than communion with Jesus Christ, we are selling ourselves short by a long shot. He is the true bread from heaven. And we ought to turn our eyes and our hearts and our attention to the bread that he provides for us. Not physical bread, but spiritually speaking. Um, so, in our house, we've kicked off a, a, an eating plan called Whole 30 this week. And the point of it, in my mind, is to try to detach myself, my heart, from my unnatural and unhealthy and idolatrous craving for and dependence on food. Obviously, I need food to live, right? Because God made us that way. We're limited. Needy people, we have to have food to survive. But I'm eating it more than to survive. I am eating it because, oh, I love the taste of a good burger or whatever it is, right? I get so hung up on how something tastes or how something makes me feel when I eat it. And I find myself, if I have a meal where I don't eat something that I love, it kind of depresses me. I find myself like feeling down. Oh man, I didn't get to have my favorite food which is idolatry. That's exactly what that is. I'm just confessing that to you. That is my heart wrapped up in food and the way it makes me feel and the pleasure that it gives me. And so to me, this is an opportunity to say no to all of that and to try to reorient my heart and my life around the true bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. And so my hope uh, is that uh, I will be seeking Jesus more for my satisfaction uh, than I tend to find in food, and particularly in tasty food. So, despite Jesus' offer of life and satisfaction, if you come to me, you'll, you'll never be hungry again. If you believe in me, you'll never thirst. Despite this offer, he says in verse 36, yet you do not believe. And it's here that Jesus begins to appeal to God's sovereignty in salvation. And I think it may be something of an explanation for the unbelief of this crowd. I, I, I think it's, he's kind of trying to say the, the reason, if you will, behind their hardness of heart. So they've come to him, but they're pursuing the wrong thing. And he's told them who he is, and he's, he's given these signs that, are, that point to his identity and to the reality of who he is and what he came to do, and they don't connect it. They don't believe. And so he starts to talk about God's sovereignty in the saving of sinners as kind of a way to show why they're not believing. So verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In other words, you don't believe me, but that doesn't worry me because I know that all the Father gives me will come to me. He continues that line of thought. Stay with me for a sec. He continues that line of thought in verse 38, the very next verse. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. So he's going to spell it out. This is what he sent me to do. This is what I came for. He says, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, clearly, he's talking about people. All the sinners that God, the Father, has given to Jesus, he will raise up on the last day. So eventually, God's giving of people to Jesus as a gift leads to their future resurrection because Jesus is on this mission to secure and preserve all that God has given him, which is amazing. He will lose nothing of all that he's been given. I can barely keep track of my five kids at the zoo, and Jesus is going to keep countless millions of people who have named him as Savior and Lord all the way through to eternity and raise them up at the last day. That's amazing. That is the sovereign keeping and preserving power of Christ. So Jesus tells this unbelieving crowd, I am not distracted from what the Father has given me to do, or afraid that I might be failing in my mission because of your unbelief. We feel like that sometimes, I think. In ministry, I certainly struggle with that. Oh, this person didn't respond the way that I hoped they would to this message or this invitation or this conversation. I must be doing something wrong. Surely I could have done that better. What is going wrong? But Jesus says, I I don't struggle with that stuff. I'm not afraid that I'm missing the mark or that I'm failing in my mission. Why? Because everyone who the Father has given to me will come to me. If the Father has sovereignly given a sinner to Jesus to redeem and keep, they will come and he will raise them up on the last day. Every sinner who comes to Jesus in faith comes to precisely because he has been given by God the Father as a gift to God the Son, the Lord Jesus. It's tough, right? It, it's a hard saying. He makes it even harder down in verse 44 where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There is an active drawing and calling that God the Father is doing in people's hearts and lives that enables them to come to Jesus. He says, if God doesn't do that, you cannot come. You are unable to save yourself. You are unable to bring yourself to me in faith unless the Father is drawing you. Unless the Father has given you to me as a gift and then draws you to it. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, speaking of God the Father, that he, the Father, chose us in him, that's Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Before he created anything, before we existed, before we were a speck in his eye, God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Just because that's what he chose to do. Because he's sovereign, and none can stay his hand and say to him, what are you doing? He chose to do it, and so he did it. And it's good, and it's right. But it's hard. It sits weird with us, I get it. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That was the second half of that statement in verse 37, where he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then he says of that very same group of people, all who come to me, I will never cast out. Now, this is more than just turning someone away. He's not merely saying, anyone who is interested in me I will not turn away. It's it's much deeper than that because whoever comes to me is the same group of people who were given to Jesus by the Father in verse 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and when they come to me, I will not cast them out. So their coming to him is more than curiosity or intrigue. It's faith. It's belief. It's lives and hearts resting in. In him and recognizing who he is and what he's come to do. So the one who comes to Jesus in this sense is the one who has partaken of the bread of life. They go back to the theme that he's unfolding throughout these verses. So when Jesus says, I won't cast him out, whoever comes to me, I, won't, I will never cast him out, he doesn't mean I won't turn him away. He means I will never stop holding on to him. He is mine forever. And I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, the sovereignty of God in your salvation is good news. We don't often think of it that way. When we talk about God being sovereign in salvation, there's this sense of, even if I come to the place where I recognize, yeah, the scriptures do do seem to teach that, it's still hard sometimes to, to convince ourselves that it's good, that it's right. There's sort of this begrudging acceptance, oh, I guess I have to believe that, You know, God saves whoever he wants, and God gifted some people to Jesus, and those are the people that Jesus is going to finally redeem. But the truth is, it's good news. It is the ground of your confidence. If you have any sense of assurance of your salvation and your position before God and your place in his family, it is based on the fact that Jesus is the one who is keeping and preserving you and will eventually raise you on the last day. In moments of doubt and weakness, where you wonder, is any of this real? Have I really believed? Am I really saved? Can God really forgive me? Has he really accepted me? You can comfort yourself with this truth. You belong to Jesus. Because the Father gave you to him. And Jesus is holding on to you now and he'll hold on to you until the last day when he raises you to a new and lasting life. It's good news. Well, he restates the will of the Father in verse 40, but with an interesting twist. I want to see if if you can spot it. So just a minute ago, he said, uh, here's the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now in verse 40... He repeats it, but he with a twist. Verse 40 For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Can you see the twist? Who's he talking about in these verses? Who's doing the action in verse 40? Is it God or people? Back in verse 37, when he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, that's God's action, right? That's the activity of God. He is giving people to Jesus. In verse 40, the will of the one who sent me is, whoever looks to me and believes in me will have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's people, right? It's sinners that are doing the activity, if you will, in verse 40. With the same result, I will raise him up on the last day. So the end result is the very same, and it's the same group of people. Those that the Father has given me and those who believe in me and come to me in faith, I will raise them up at the last day. So the plot thickens a little bit here. This is where uh, maybe a little bit of mystery lies. Who is it that you're going to raise up on the last day, Jesus? Is it those individuals whom the Father has given to you as a gift? Yes, it is. Is it those individuals who look on the sun and believe in him? Yes, it is. You see, human beings are responsible before God for how they respond to the invitation to new life in Jesus. There is human activity involved in this. Human individuals look to Jesus and believe in him and come to him. So who is at work in the salvation of sinners? That's the $64 million question. Is it God who sovereignly calls and draws and gives people to Jesus? Is it sinners who look to Jesus and come to faith in him? And this tension really runs throughout this passage the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So I've got a little chart here that I want to show you. Uh, Do you still have the slides, Judith? You flip forward. Um, So the bottom's cut off, but that's all right. so this is just verses from this passage broken into who is the one doing the, the, the activity, if you will, spoken in the verses. So we start out on the right-hand side of the column with, with, with our responsibility, human responsibility. So verse back in verse 35, Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So who's coming to Jesus? Who's believing in Jesus? That's us. That's Sinners coming to Jesus in faith. So there's human responsibility. We have to come. We have to believe. We have to look to him. Now we go back to the other side of the chart, and we see in verse 37, all that the Father gives me. Who's doing the work there? That's God. But what's the second half of that verse? Will come to me. Who does the calling? God. Who does the coming? People. God calls them, and they come to him. So there is God at work, And there are people responding, and they are responsible to come. Verse 39, he says, The will of the one who sent me is that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Who's doing that work? That's not us. That's God. That's his work. Verse 40, The will of the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Who's doing the looking and the believing? That's us. Right? That's people, that's sinners coming to Jesus and looking to him and believing in him. That's human responsibility. Verse 40, he says, everyone who looks to him and believes in him should have eternal life. And verse 40, I will raise him up on the last day. Who is doing the raising up? Not our, well, not us. I'm not resurrecting myself at the future. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who will raise us up on the last day. Down in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's God's work. God is working in people's hearts to draw them to Christ. And if that drawing doesn't happen, a person will not come. That's the basic reality of what Jesus is saying here. That's the inference that he makes. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The corollary of that is if the Father does not draw him, he will not come. That's the work of God. That is the sovereign activity of God working in the heart of a sinner. Verse 44, he says again, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who's doing the raising? Not us, that's Jesus. And they will, this is amazing, verse 45. Uh, Let's read this together. Look at verse 45, if you've got the scriptures in front of you. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Taught by God, heard from God, learned from the Father. I think those, are, those phrases are the, the exact same thing as the drawing of the Father. The Father gives sinners to Jesus. The Father draws sinners to Jesus in faith. And the Father teaches those sinners and speaks to them, and they learn from him. I think that's different descriptions of the same reality of God's inner working in a sinner's heart to draw him to Jesus, which is pretty, a pretty cool way to think about that. You've been, if you've come to Jesus in faith, you've been taught by God. The Father has spoken to your heart and drawn you toward him. So whose activity is that? That's God's. He's teaching you, right? You're learning from him. You're hearing from him. But what does a person do if he's been taught by God? Verse 45, he comes to me, Jesus says. That's human responsibility. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, remember, for real, for real, that's what Charlie said that means. For real, for real, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Who's believing? Sinners, us. There's human responsibility. And then finally in verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That's people eating of the bread. That's people partaking of Christ and believing in him and receiving what he offers. So God's at work, and humans are responsible to respond to God's work. That's the reality. And that tension, apparent tension at least, runs not just throughout this passage, but really throughout the New Testament. And I think a lot of the difficulty and the debating and the fighting that has happened among Christians for really hundreds of years over this issue has to do with the fact that we're not comfortable with things standing in tension. We've got to figure out a way to pull one to the other or this one over here, right? So it's either, no, God is totally sovereign in the saving of sinners, period, and you're just a, you know, a pawn on a chessboard and God just moves you where he wants you to move. Or it's, no, God has no say in what you do and believe, and he can't mess with your heart. You have to, because he doesn't want, have you ever heard this? God doesn't want robots. God doesn't want this automatic response, that kind of a thing. So it's like, God is like hands off. He's like, I hope you believe in me. Just good luck, right? Uh, And and he just leaves it to our own kind of self-determination. It's either this over here or it's this over here. But the truth is the scriptures hold God's sovereignty and salvation as undeniable, and the human responsibility to believe and to come to him in faith as unalterable, those realities must be held. And if either of those gives way, think about a volleyball net. There's two poles that have to be held in tension for the net to stay up, right? If one of those poles starts to fall, what happens to the net? It collapses. It doesn't stand up. So we have to be willing <laughs> to live with some tension, thus a hard saying. Because we don't like tension. We like to tie everything up in a neat little bow and put it in a box and go, isn't that so nice? It all makes perfect sense and fits into our minds and we totally, completely understand the way that God works. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we come to that kind of a conclusion. Let me give you three reasons quickly why God's sovereignty and our salvation is good news. I've already given you one of them, but I'll repeat it. It secures our future resurrection. Over and over in this passage, Jesus says, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the sun, I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, if you were to skip down a few verses uh, beyond where we're going to be today, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, weird, will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. We'll talk about those verses next week. I will raise him up on the last day over and over and over. I will raise him up on the last day. How do you know that, Jesus? Jesus. How do you know with confidence that people are going to come to you in faith and that your sacrifice on the cross wasn't just like wishful thinking? I hope somebody responds. He says, no, if the Father gave you to me, you're mine, and I'm going to hold you. It's like the end of the, of the book of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I love that benediction, that final statement from the book of Jude. But it's all about God's keeping power. Praise to the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. Thank God I don't have to do that. I don't have to keep myself. I don't have to present myself blameless before God. If that were up to me, I would be damned for eternity. I promise you. It is the keeping power of Jesus in your life that holds you and assures your future resurrection. Second reason that the sovereignty of God in our salvation is good news is that it pulls the rug out from under our pride. And trust me, that's good news because pride is the great foe, and wages war against our souls in so many ways. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, I'm not even going to try to find it. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. I think that refers both to the grace and the faith, by the way. That not of yourselves, so that, and not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, the the reason that God's done it this way is so that nobody gets to stand in God's presence and go, look how good I did. Check out my spiritual resume like the Pharisees. We don't get to do that because everybody is on the same footing before God, and it's totally grace. It's God's mercy to sinners, and that's it. I have nothing else to claim or to plead. And so it pulls the rug out from under our pride and says, you did not contribute to your salvation. You responded. You believed, you trusted Christ, you came to him. But the only reason you were even able to do that is because God was sovereignly at work drawing you to him and teaching your heart to believe in Christ. Third, it's good news because it empowers our prayers for non-Christians. Because they're blind. They're dead. The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins in which which we once walked. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that those who do not believe are blinded by the devil, by the God of this age, so that they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They're blind and they're dead. What dead person can make himself alive again? What blind person can give sight to his own eyes? He, they need to be reborn. Sight to the blind and life to the dead is the work of God. So when we pray for God to save a person, We are asking him to do what only he is uniquely able to do. Draw him, call him, teach him to come to Christ in faith. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 through 26, Paul says, Paul Paul speaks of people in the church at Ephesus who were uh, giving Timothy a hard time. And he says, to correct them with gentleness and patience. Because God may grant them repentance and saving faith. Repentance is granted them by God. So there's mystery here. There's no question. God is way bigger than us. He's different than us. He's beyond us. One of my favorite verses uh, to, to remind myself of when stuff just kind of blows my mind like this is Deuteronomy 29. 29 which says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But that which is revealed belongs to us and to our children forever. There's secret stuff that we don't see and we don't know and we can't comprehend. That's his. We need to be okay going, all right, God, I'll I'll let you deal with that mystery because it's not mysterious to you, but I don't get it. And I'm okay with that. The secret things belong to the Lord. Let's concern ourselves with what's revealed. What's revealed is, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. What's revealed is, if you eat this bread, you will live forever. That's plain, that's clear, that's obvious. Trust Christ and receive eternal life. So if you have a hard time getting your mind around the apparent tensions between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in our salvation, please don't be discouraged. First of all, you'll be joining the ranks of hundreds and probably thousands of theologians and pastors and seminary students who have wrestled with this matter for centuries and, by the way, still come down all over the place. It's a tough issue. But mainly, take heart knowing that the God that you worship and serve can't fit into your systems and categories and into your logic, and into your brain. Because he's beyond you in every way. He's worthy of your worship. Let's look at one more verse together. Final verse of uh, our text today is verse 51. Look down there, it's very important. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So here's the bottom line. No matter what you think about sovereignty and predestination and free will and whatnot, if you eat the bread of Jesus, you will live forever. Period. The invitation is there. When Jesus says that he gives his flesh for the life of the world, he's speaking about his death on a cross where he would hang for sinners because he loves you and he loves his Father and his mission is to secure and preserve forever those who look to him and believe. Do you know him? Do you believe in him? If you haven't done that, Would you open your heart to him today and receive the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who suffered for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be right with God and have eternal life.